Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Job, more properly understood as Enduring Job, because we are going through the hardest book in all of Holy Scripture to accept. Now, that said, before we go into Job chapter 2 and read it together, we will begin in the book of St. James the fifth chapter, beginning in the seventh verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. As with last week and for a few weeks, I will be reminding everybody that as counterintuitive as it is, when we interpret scripture with scripture, we see that St. James gives us the meaning of the book of Job. God's purpose for having this book in the canon, the entirety of the book of Job, is to teach us that he is compassionate and merciful. As we read last week, though, going through Job chapter 1, we don't get a picture of mercy. The first chapter of Job is incredibly easy to mischaracterize as God gambling with Job's life permitting the devil to take away his riches, his children, his cattle, his servants, whom he knew personally. He took care of people as a righteous man. In fact, all of Job chapter 1 is counterintuitive, especially for us Lutherans, we who confess every Sunday morning that we are poor, miserable sinners in need of a Savior, well, Job, chapter 1, verse 1, says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And also at the same time, while we are taught and catechized that God never does wrong, what do we hear after everything is taken away from Job? We hear, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job rightly, according to the witness of Holy Scripture, says that God is the cause of the disaster that just befell him. Yet at the same time, Job did not sin by charging God with it. By saying, you personally, wickedly, in an evil manner, did all these terrible things to me, God. Instead, 
Job gets on his knees and worships. From there, then, we may begin reading in Job chapter 2. We are going to start in the first verse, which gives us worse pain. At least from my way of looking at it, worse pain than the first chapter. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. First, off the bat, we do not know how much time has passed between Job losing all of his livelihood, all of his children, and all of his servants, with the exception of the few survivors. We have no clue how long it has been. But it is reasonable to assume that it has not been a very long time. And Satan, which means adversary or accuser, the devil, goes back to the presence of God. We must ask again, as we did last week, why was the devil allowed to be in the presence of God? I would wager that it is specifically for this incident that God, as St. James is saying in his epistle, may teach us that he is compassionate and merciful. I digress. Let us continue on in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die! But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Immediately, we notice yet more uncomfortable additions to the scriptures here. Of course, this is all inspired in Holy Scripture, but when we hear God saying something like, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. We hear God saying, The devil incited him. And all of the theologians, I am sure, are pretending that this passage does not exist. After all, don't we learn in seminary and in Bible college that God is 
immutable. He never changes, of course. And God is impassable. You cannot change God's emotions. You are not going to change his mind. You are not going to convince him of something unless he has already made up his mind to do it. At least so the theologians in their ivory tower say. But here God is saying, no, in this moment I am passable. You can actually incite me, oh devil. Satan, you incited me to do this. Yet look at Job. He still holds fast to his integrity. Now he says without reason. I do not believe this is God saying that he was incited without reason to permit all this harm to come upon Job's life. To the contrary, it is the devil who has no good reason to do this. The devil is smarter than a human being. He has been around for thousands of years. His IQ is astronomically higher than yours and mine. It was child's play for the devil to understand that Job's faith in the Lord was real. It was legitimate. It was not a faith that presumed upon blessings alone. Job was no materialist, banking on his prosperity to permit himself to continue worshiping God. The devil knew this. But the devil was not accusing God of doing this for Job's sake. He was not accusing Job. He was accusing God. And Satan knew better than to say that God had some immorality in him, some dark, sinful, wicked half. As Carl Jung, he posited this quaternity in response to reading the book of Job, believing there was some fourth person of the Trinity that sinned. Poppycock. The devil knew darn well, having been the top dog angel for a long time, presumably, that God is perfect. He has no flaws. He has no moral shortcomings. He will never, ever betray a believer. So God says, you incited me without reason, Satan. You knew better. Yet look at Job. He still holds on to his integrity. Now to comfort the would-be theologians in the audience, for anybody listening on SoundCloud, those who are listening with me on the live stream, I all trust that they are biblical scholars of the highest degree, contrary to some worried theologians listening right now on SoundCloud. Does this mean that God in his essence is completely passable? Do we need to throw out all classical theology out the window? No. Not necessarily. In the book of Zechariah, who interacts with the devil when the devil accuses Joshua the high priest? Well, it's the angel of the Lord. It is God. He's identified as God, but he says, The Lord rebuke you to Satan. Which member of the Trinity would do this? Our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, who in his human nature most certainly is passable. Is there a chance for those worry warts, theological worry warts, that the devil here is interacting with Jesus in the same way that he did when arguing over Joshua the high priest? Probably. Am I going to worry about it? No. 
The Bible says that the devil incited our Lord to permit all of this against Job to destroy him. Remember, Job had everything taken away from him. God calls this what it is. A complete destruction of everything Job had worked for his entire life. And he says, you did this without reason. You knew better. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Is that true? Of course not. Again, yet again, the devil is going to be proven wrong. But my question to us, to the hearts of everybody listening, why would God respond, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life? For the one hand, what if somebody in the audience, reading Job for the first time, says, Oh, if that were me, I'd be so thankful, because at least I have my good health. What if it was the opposite, and Satan had only touched his body and covered him head to toe in blisters, but he still had all of his cattle. He could hold on to something. Job is not completely broken and destitute yet for his faith to truly be put under the crucible of suffering. So indeed... To make his point, not a bet, not a gamble, God makes his point by permitting the devil to touch Job. Now we cannot speculate on what exactly it feels like to be touched by the devil. If the darkest, most wicked being in the entire universe personally comes up to you and touches you, I am sure that you will also be covered in sores from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. That's unfortunately something the devil can do when he is permitted. But, we now have to ask something. In verses 9 and 10, what does the scripture say? Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Why was Job's wife permitted to live? If the goal was to take everything from Job, all of his children, all of his servants, his cattle, all of his ways of making money, all of his buildings, everything just gone. Why preserve his wife? Why allow her to live? Beloved, there is an extremely easy answer to this. The two shall become one flesh. When God says to Satan, spare Job's life, Job and his wife are one. To kill Job's wife is in some senses at least to kill Job, to take away half of this man's life, and the devil was not permitted to do so. Yet, The devil's still at work in the details here. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. What does that tell us? That tells us from the witness of scripture that it is likely that Job's wife, her bitter, ugly, taunting, mocking words at Job, 
That is not something she would normally say. What does Adam say in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 23, when he is first presented with his wife Eve? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Bone and flesh. What does the devil say to our Lord? Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Oh, in one sense, this means actually going out, touching Job, and the act of the devil touching this poor man covers him in sores, head to, head to the sole of his foot. But the bone of his bone and the flesh of his flesh is his wife. She has not suffered physically, but she is suffering spiritually. The devil is afflicting her with the worst thoughts, the worst desires to kick her husband while he is down. And so, Job, maybe sensing this a little, says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He's not calling her stupid. He is not saying that she is foolish in the sense of putting her pants on her head in the morning. To the contrary, the word fool in wisdom literature, remember Job is considered wisdom literature even though it is a memoir from the prophet Job himself as we covered last week. The word fool, also Nabal, is somebody with moral failings. For somebody to be a fool in the sense that King Solomon describes the fool in the book of Proverbs is somebody who does not fear God. They do not care about God's wisdom. They do not care about his law. They don't care to trust in him, making them Nabal, making them a fool. Job is not telling his wife, you're stupid. You're talking like crazy talk, idiot. He is saying, what you are saying is foolish. It is morally foolish. Why would I dare to curse God and die? How could I ever do that? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now, the text says in all this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I wish it would include how righteous and pastoral it is for Job to approach his wife in her moment of temptation, in her moment of mental and spiritual suffering, to reply to her by saying, this is immoral of you to speak this way. He could have said, how dare you? How dare you wish your husband to die like this? He could have called her an idiot. He could have said she was stupid. But instead, he pricks her heart with the law to bring his wife to repentance. Job is counted among the prophets in the book of James chapter 5. Even here, when he has lost everything in all of his livelihood... And in addition to that, he has now lost his wife's loyalty as the devil himself plagues her soul. Even here, he has a pastoral and prophetic heart. If we go back to Job 1 verse 1, 
There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. His words to his wife were extremely pastoral and faithful. This is what a blameless and upright man does in the face of losing everything, including his wife's loyalty. Now from verse 11 onward, it's only a few verses to the end of this chapter, but it is important. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. In this moment, most pastors will tell you, well, this is this is what Job's friends get right. They spend a whole week just sitting there with him. Isn't that so nice of them? To uh, weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, this is good for them to do as Job's friends. But is it really? It is, but how do we know that? There are plenty of people that will sit there and stare at you, gawking at your life when it falls apart. But if we forget the details about what Job's friends are doing and what Job has gone through right now, we miss the compassion that they have on him. And an ironic one at that. First off, they hear of the evil, the disaster that comes upon him, they all go together, they make an appointment even, to come and show him sympathy. Their intention is to bring him comfort and sympathy. There is irony here. There is definitely a sense of irony because their words after this will not be ironic. They will not be comforting, to say the least. However, they make an appointment to help out their friend. Good. They saw him from a distance. They did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They did not recognize him at first, and so when they came to him, they raised their voices and wept. If they had recognized him, then maybe this would have been like one of those ancient Near Eastern mourning parties, where people would gin themselves up into a state of tears and weeping and ripping out their hair and harming themselves. There were paid professionals in a mourning industry that would do this for you in the ancient Near East. But because they do not recognize their friend, we cannot say that they had this perfectly choreographed. The way that they feel, their sympathy, their care for their friend is unfeigned. It is not fake. It is legitimate. 
And just as they came to him to comfort him out of the goodness of their hearts, out of love for their friend at least, so too do they truly weep with those who weep from the heart. Third, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The human body cannot live for more than three days without water. Meaning as they sat there, somebody had to provide food and water. Who? Who did this? It certainly was not Job. What food did Job have? How could he get money to go out to the store to buy something? Could he have gone into the marketplace with a sheep, sold the sheep, and brought food? Could he have slaughtered a goat to get food to eat? No, of course not. Job lost everything. Could Job's wife have humbly served these men to make sure they had something to eat and drink during this time? Unlikely. She just lost everything, too, and she is suffering gravely in a spiritual fashion. She just underwent great temptation herself to hate her own husband and started giving into it before Job spoke to her with a prophetic and pastoral voice. These men provided everything. In all likelihood, they brought the water. They brought the food. They had some sort of shelter, hopefully some sort of tent to be there. They were bringing everything that was needed to just sit with their friend Job and commiserate. So, what they do at first is a description of real compassion on their friend who lost everything and was sitting in terrible sorrow. Now, description is not the same as prescription. We must be careful to not confuse this with a command, whether of the law or of apostolic command, to say that if your friend loses everything, this is what you must do or else you are a terrible friend. You must be like Bildad or uh, the Temanite or Zophar here. You must do exactly as they do or else you are a bad person. The Bible is not commanding this. However, their expression of it is tailored to their friend Job. And the expectation of us as Christians is to see, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, and to know our friends well enough, as much as we can anyway, to help them in their misery in a way that is appropriate. What these men do in this moment is righteous, even though... Their speeches to Job are going to be a mixed bag. Some good, some bad. When we get to Elihu, it's mostly going to be bad. I'm going to be disagreeing with your pastor in all likelihood with that. That's okay. Moving on. I want to turn, as we close up, very briefly to the book of Hebrews. We are still in our Hebrews Bible study that will be updated next week. But the book of Hebrews teaches us a little bit about the attitude that the prophet and the godly man Job had. 
in chapter 12, what does the author of Hebrews tell us? In verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We learn in Hebrews chapter 12 of the chastening of the Lord, his discipline upon us as a father disciplines his sons. And we are told to accept this as something that is good for us in making us holy. But the author of Hebrews continues in the 12th verse by telling us to lift up your hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, be a positive, active party in this process of sanctification, painful though it may be, and keep going. When we continue next week in the third chapter, this passage will be all the more important because that part to strengthen the hands and the knees, and to get back up and keep going is something Job does not do. I believe that to be his mistake throughout this entire book. But we will start getting into that next week. I invite everybody listening in on SoundCloud. Uh, to come in next week for streaming, please send me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com so that I can send you an invite link to find the stream where we do this because after that we do have some fellowship, some question and answer time so that we can clear things up. If you have some burning questions or insults that you'd like to bring up with me, that is a-okay. The Catacomb Synod permits live streaming to air grievances so long as they are civil. But we will catch you all then. Amen and amen.